Pain's a part of life. I think some people believe it's a test of your faith, but if you don't have a faith to believe in, it kind of makes you wonder why, why is there suffering in this world? It was a reason why he took him. Uh, maybe he needed some angels up there to protect protect, to help him in the fight against the devil. A baby is a beautiful, wonderful thing. Why doesn't he want me to have this? Bad things are just the way that you see them. I think God's in everything we do. Why would anybody want to create people who do horrible things to each other? It doesn't make any sense. I don't think God's sitting there and saying these people are hurting and maybe I should help them. I suppose the answers will come. It's just... I'm going through a journey right now that's painful. Kate Bowler is a seminary professor at Duke Divinity School. She went there for her undergrad and she went to Yale Divinity School and it was the job of her dreams to get hired by her alma mater to then begin teaching at their Divinity School. She and her husband had their first child. Life really was perfect. And then came the cancer diagnosis, stage four, terminal. And there were, there were treatment options, but the conversation had to begin shifting from can this be cured to what can we do to keep this at bay as long as possible. It completely rocked their world. One day, a well-meaning neighbor came by their house when Kate was still at the hospital and her Husband was there, and this neighbor um, said to him, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. To which her frustrated husband replied, I'd I'd love to know it. Pardon, is what the neighbor said. Oh, you know, the reason that my my wife is dying. I'd, I'd love to know it. Well, the neighbor didn't really know what to say and handed him a casserole and went on her way. Kate ended up writing a book uh, about that, well, the, the title of the, of the book stems from that interaction. It's called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. It is honest. It's sad. It is actually uh, quite hilarious. She's really, really funny and very helpful. Um, she talks about other things not to say to someone in a situation like this, particularly a health crisis. And she just has the responses that are just wonderfully snarky. Uh, one of the things that she's heard is, well, it's going to get better, I promise. To which she replies, well, fairy godmother, that's going to be a tough road to hoe when things go badly. Uh, or this one, how are you really? How are the treatments going? Tell me everything. She says, this is tough because she knows people are trying to connect. But her response is, okay, picture the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Got it? Now try to put it in a sentence. Now say it out loud 50 times a day. Does your head hurt? Do you feel sad? Yeah, me too. So let's just see if if I want to talk about it today because sometimes I do and sometimes I want a hug and a recap of American Ninja Warrior. She also has a a list. These are all in in an appendix at the end of the book. She has a list of things that that you can say. So for instance, I'd love to bring you a meal next week. Can I email you about it? Yes, she said, yes, always ask me that, always bring me a meal. Uh, number two, you can always say, you are a beautiful person. Number three, oh my friend, that sounds so hard. And then number four, that's right, silence is okay too. Uh, she says, pain is awkward, 
Tragedy is awkward. People's weird, suffering bodies are awkward. Take the advice of one friend who says his policy is show up and shut up. So uh, the book grew out of an article that she wrote to, uh, that, that, that she submitted to the New York Times, not thinking it would actually get published. It did get published, and she began to receive all sorts of letters and emails from people really all over the theological spectrum. Some people wrote in to tell her, uh, well, this is why, if you want to know why you're suffering, it's because of your sin, and here's why. And she said, well, oh, great, thank you. That's really helpful. Thank you so much for telling me about my sin is why I have cancer now. Um, other people uh, just took an opportunity to share their story and their, their story of suffering and, and sort of dealing with that. And some of them... Uh, one person in particular said that, that their suffering had robbed them completely of their own faith. And the, the note read this way, I find it comforting to believe the universe is random because then the God I believe in is no longer cruel. This is, of course, entirely understandable. And as I have observed people in their pain, I see that pain and suffering has the potential to do two equal and opposite things to people. It can cause people to grow angry with God and to move away from their faith. And it can also cause people to, to, to draw into God and their faith to grow. My wife and I were at a crossroads uh, early on in our relationship. We were not yet married. We were in college. Things were going just incredibly well. We started dating. Uh, we're doing a campus ministry that we were involved in. And, and things were great. And uh, Heidi's mother, with whom she was very close, on a day off from work, she went ice skating. She slipped and fell, and she hit her head. She immediately went into a coma. And despite our fervent prayers, the prayers of, of everyone we knew all over the country, 13 days later, she passed away. We were devastated, and we were left with this question of why? Why did this happen? A lot of people can have that response. The universe does seem very random. And to be honest, uh, it makes a lot of sense. If we are to believe that God is all-loving and all-powerful, as the Bible talks about, then why would a loving God who is able to keep us from pain, why would he allow it? We knew that God was able to heal Heidi's mom, so why didn't he? If he has the power to alleviate suffering, why doesn't he? And I've seen this perspective in other friends of mine as well. I have a friend who grew up in a, as a strong Christian and through his graduate work in the fields of biology and virology began to discover you know, through his work these things like, like viruses and diseases that would cause such pain. And he just grew angry with a God who would allow that kind of stuff to exist. When I last spoke with him, he hadn't been to church in years. Suffering can and does move people away from their faith. And then there is another category of people, those who draw nearer to God in the times of pain and suffering. Kate quotes from one note uh, she received from someone, a woman named Carol, who said uh, that after she was recently diagnosed with cancer, she says, I've known Christ in so many good times, and now I will know him better in his sufferings. To be honest with you, these people amaze me. I remember about 10 years ago, I spoke on this topic here, and I have a, I had a friend who was dying of cancer, 
And after my sermon, I saw her in the lobby and I, I really didn't, I didn't want to see her. I, I thought, what do I have? To, you know, I was just sort of embarrassed, honestly, uh, to, to walk by her, knowing the pain that she was going through. And she grabbed me instead and she stopped me and she said, oh, Siler, thank you so much for your words. You were just speaking directly to me. I really needed to hear that. I was just so blown away by her faith. There's people like Johnny Erickson Tata who was injured in a diving accident and has been a quadriplegic for the past 50 years. After a period of anger and depression and doubt, she emerged from this experience with a strong faith. She taught herself to paint with a, using a, a paintbrush between her teeth. She's written over 40 books, became an incredible advocate for people with disabilities. I think of my friend Cameron Cole, who is a youth pastor in Alabama, whose three-year-old son died suddenly. They still to this day don't know what happened, but he didn't lose his faith. He saw God provide for him in the midst of his grief, and out of that grief he wrote a book that I would highly recommend anybody, anyone going through a time of grief. It's called, Therefore I Have Hope, 12 Truths That Comfort, Sustain, and Redeem in Tragedy. One more. Some of you might remember this story about 25 years ago. It's a pastor in the Chicago area named Scott Willis. He and his wife Janet were driving um, north to Milwaukee from here. In their minivan, they had six, the, the six youngest of their nine children. They ran over some, a, a piece of metal that had fallen off of a rig. The car burst into flames. The parents survived, but none of the six children did. And it was made even worse when it was discovered that the the driver of the rig got his license illegally by bribing someone at the Illinois DMV. The guy never should have been on the road. And yet, throughout this entire ordeal, the Willises have professed their faith in God. On the 20th anniversary of the accident, Scott made this statement. He said, we can praise God even when we don't know why, because of who he is and what he has for us. It's not the end for us. We will see those children. So what's going on? How how do some people find hope and purpose in suffering while others conclude it's all just just random and cruel? Well, it's our topic for today. Why does God allow pain and suffering? And what can we learn from people like the Willises and my friend Cameron and others who seem to to have had their tragedy push them towards God rather than away from God? I'd like to start uh, by looking at, at a passage in James 1, There's a category of evil that I think it's helpful to know about because there's a category of evil that that comes from something that that has to do with our own choices that we make that James talks about here. So turn to James chapter 1 starting in verse 13. It says this, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So there's this category of suffering that really stems from the fact that the way the world was created is that we have choices to make. We can choose to to do good or to do evil. And really, we, every single day, each of us has the choice to make. We can, we can do great things with our lives or we can, we can do evil. And so uh, to blame God for that doesn't make a lot of sense because that's not God's fault. We choose, people all make choices to, to do evil or to do good. 
But there is uh, another category of, of suffering that I'm going to be focusing on today, which is suffering not brought upon by our own evil choices. I remember reading a column in a newspaper uh, where a guy expressed his kind of worldview and the reason why he, he was either agnostic or an atheist because he said, imagine a, a, a house, you come upon a house and in the house there's a bunch of rooms and in some of the rooms you find people living lavishly. In some rooms, there's kind of modest accommodations, but in most of the rooms, there's just absolute squalor, terrible living conditions. He said, what would you think about the owner of that house? In other words, any God who would treat so many of his children so unfairly doesn't really appeal to him. And I get this. People stumble over this because of the the pain and the anger that they feel because of this inequity, and they, they abandon God because... They can't make sense out of it. Well, the problem is we don't necessarily find answers to the why questions, and I'm, I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers, and in fact, I think you should distrust anyone who says, oh, yeah, yeah, I got the answer. This is a simple thing, because it's really not simple, but I have one observation that I want to make before I move on to five points, and the observation is this. Just when you look at the Bible, the Bible is full of examples of godly people who suffer. Just naming a few from the Old Testament, Adam and Eve had to deal with the tragedy of having one of their sons murdered by the other. Jacob suffers the loss of having a treasured son apparently killed. Joseph is sold into slavery. The Israelites live as slaves in Egypt until they're rescued. In the book of Ruth, we often remember the happy ending, but we forget that it starts where there's a famine in the land and Naomi's husband and two sons die. Uh, You have the Babylonian captivity, the persecution there. Not to mention Job, of course. You can't preach a sermon on suffering and not mention Job. Then we jump to the New Testament. You have Jesus, fully God and fully man. If there was ever someone who didn't deserve to suffer, it was Jesus. And yet, this is a man who was born in a barn, raised in modest surroundings, lives a nomadic life. He endures the pain of having his close friend and cousin John the Baptist killed. He's tried unjustly and then he himself is killed in one of the most gruesome manners possible. Then we have the Apostle Paul who is at his conversion. He is, of course, one of the most influential early Christians, wrote almost half the books of the New Testament. And at his conversion, uh, God sends a message to a man named Ananias to tell Paul, then named Saul, Tell him this message. Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. This is God's chosen instrument. What's the next thing? How is God going to deal with this chosen instrument? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. This is just the reality of the Bible. Contrast this with what you might hear from some folks who would say that if you are following Jesus... He wants you free from suffering. He wants you healthy. He wants you wealthy. And you are just one prayer away from every great parking place you ever dreamed of. You just got to ask. You just got to name it. You just got to claim it. Uh, This is kind of known as the prosperity gospel, and that is not found in the Bible. You have to do a whole lot of selective reading of the Bible to understand that this worldview is actually a biblical one. So, we just need to understand, I don't have time to go into a whole lot of, of details there, but you just need to understand that the Bible is filled with 
suffering. And then the last thing I want to say before I get to my five points is this. I'm going to be talking about what, what I would say is some of the purposes of suffering, which is not the same thing that God is happy that bad things happen to you. Our world is broken and God grieves with you as you grieve. I'm going to talk more about that in my final point. But if you are in the midst of suffering right now, this may not be something that you are ready to, to hear. And if you want to zone out and sort of go, I'm, I'm just not ready for this, I totally understand that. So here are the five points. Point number one is this, suffering gives us the proper perspective. First Peter 1 says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. When we experience suffering, our fascination with sin tends to wane, right? The important things in life matter more. When you're you're faced, for instance, when you're faced with a a life-threatening illness, you don't immediately go, you know what? I need to get my air ducts cleaned. You don't say that. You don't think, I have been gossiping far too little. You don't say, it's time to start playing a lot more video games. I really got to amp up my video game game right now. No, you don't. The important things start to matter the most. What are the relationships that are broken that need to be mended? The, the people that I care about. All of a sudden, when we suffer, you, you have a, a different perspective on life. And observing, observing the suffering in others will, will do this to us as well. I have a friend who is... He's kind of a jerk, would be the, probably the best way to put it. Like, he's really loyal to his friends, and he's got a great personality, but he's kind of arrogant, and uh, he's kind of selfish. And yet, in his free time, he spends all of his free time that he can devoted to helping an organization that focuses on helping children with cancer. Now, why is that? Well, because he found out about this organization and it did something to him, changed his heart, and so that's what he cares about. Some of you may uh, watch the very popular television show Shark Tank. Uh, it's fun to watch, fun to see what the entrepreneurs and the businessmen and women bring. And um, th- So the idea is that they come in and then there's these five billionaires who are sitting in these, these chairs and they're trying to figure out what to invest in. And a lot of times they're just kind of mean, right? They, they, they make these people cry and they say, this is terrible and, you know, you're a cockroach and you're dead to me and things like that. Um, one time someone walked in, I, this past fall, I saw a, a, a group of siblings, 15 to 24 ages, three of them, uh, age ranges are 15 to 24, and they walked in with this invention that their father had, had done. He was a fireman in New York City. It was a cutting board. And then they wanted, went on to explain that their father couldn't be there because he had recently died of cancer, a cancer that he had gotten as a result of the cleanup efforts of 9-11. Well, uh, then they all, also go on to explain that their mother had died of breast cancer five years before that. I'd never seen a response before from these five powerful cutthroat people. They were all reduced to tears. And they sent them out of the room for a minute and then they, they came back. They did something I've never seen them done. They decided that all five of them were going to invest in this business. And moreover, they were going to donate any money that they gained from it, donate it to a charity for firemen affected by 9-11. What happened? They observed suffering 
and it changed them. It changed their hearts. It changes our perspective. Suffering engages our hearts in a way that nothing else does. That's point number one. Point number two is this. Suffering reminds us that we are not the center of the universe. I'm reminded of the line by that great theologian, Daffy Duck, who gets Bugs Bunny to be the abominable snowman's pet instead of him. You might have seen this, uh, this Looney Tunes at some point along the way. So he tricks Bugs into being the pet of the abominable snowman and not him. And then he says this, poor old Bugs, but anyway, anyway you look at it, it's better he should suffer. After all, it was me or him, and obviously it couldn't be me. It's a simple matter of logic. I'm not like other people. I can't stand pain. It hurts me which is a line I've always remembered from my childhood. Daffy's just like, oh, I mean, this, is, this may be for you, but suffering is not for me. I, I can't stand pain. It hurts me. We think we're the ones to be immune from suffering. That's for other people. Well, and in fact, in this country, our assumption is that we deserve a life free of suffering. You travel to other places, and you hear them, and, and they'll say, oh, yeah, I mean, of course, life is, life is about Good things and life is about suffering. That's both. Life is hard, but God is good. Not here. Here we think if God is good, then my life better be awesome. It better be incredible. We think we deserve health and wealth and prosperity and a long life. We think we are owed 80 to 90 years of of pain-free life. And when, when pain or disease comes along, we shake our fists at God. We get frustrated annoyed, self-righteous. We, we look around and we say, well, hey, how, how come he's not suffering like me? How come she has to, I, I have to deal with this and she doesn't have to deal with that? We think life is hard, so God must not be good. Well, God will sometimes bring suffering into our lives so that he can get our attention. It's kind of a portal to move us closer to God. C.S. Lewis's famous quote is worth re-quoting here, even if you've heard it 70 times, but it's from his book, The Problem of Pain, where he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When we see suffering as an obstacle to the pain-free life that we think we deserve, we're displaying that God is actually not at the center of, of, of the universe for us. And many of us... <laughs> Some of us, I guess I would say, live our Christian faith out still believing that we're at the center of the universe. Some of us hear the gospel and we think, oh, so I need to just pray this prayer and then I go to heaven and, and everything's good. But we still don't understand that that's not a, it's not enough to just pray this prayer. We have to, to, to do this shift to see that it's not just about us. Life is not just about us. It's actually about God. And I I remember the moment in my own life when I, when I had that kind of revolution that happened in the same way that people had to, to, to when they realized that the earth does not, that the sun does not revolve around the earth, but the earth revolves around the sun. It was this revolution that had to happen. And it was my senior year in high school. I'd been a Christian most of my life. But my senior year in high school, it just, it just hit me. Oh my goodness. This life's actually not about me, is it? It's about God. I, I get to play a, a small part in God's story. We all have to come to that realization and suffering can sometimes do that for us because if you and your happiness, your joy are at the center, then it just feels like 
Suffering is unfair, but God is at the center and not you. And there's, there's so many things happening all around us. And life makes sense only when God and not we are at the center of the universe. We have to, another way to say this is that we have to hope in God, not in our circumstances. When we hope in anything other than, than God, it's about as helpful as hoping in a roulette wheel. If we hope in a roulette wheel, eventually we are going to get let down. When we hope in our circumstances, we're going to get let down. We have to hope in God. That's point number two. Point number three is this. Suffering allows us to be the hands and feet of Christ to those who suffer. If I had a chance to respond to that columnist who had the analogy about the rooms, I would say, well, what if you knew, that, if you knew the owner of that home? And what if you knew that the owner of the home was actually a really good person? That might change your perspective to say, well, what about the people living in the really nice rooms? Why aren't they doing something to help the people who are living in the, the bad rooms where, where there's difficult circumstances? And, and you would imagine that the owner might go to some of the people living in, in the nice rooms and say, Hi, I actually need your help. I need your help. Would you be willing to help those in the other rooms? Well, in fact, we do live there. And as one of the residents of the nice rooms, and we are all residents of the nice rooms, you might say, oh, no, no, you don't know, what, you know, you don't know where I live, Tyler. Well, if you own a car, you're in the top 10% of the wealth you know, for the whole world. So most of us here would be considered a resident of one of the nice rooms. And the owner is saying to us, I need your help. People living in these rooms need your help to alleviate their suffering. Will you, will you help me? It's what inspired a man named Gary Haugen who was working, he was a Harvard-educated lawyer working in the Justice Department, and he was sent to Rwanda in 1994 to investigate the genocide that happened there. And he was so troubled and moved by what he saw that he, he vowed that when he returned to the United States, he would have to go to the, the Christian justice organization and tell them what, what he saw so that this would never happen again. And he got back and he realized, oh, there is no Christian justice organization. Oh, I guess I have to start the Christian justice organization, which is what he did. He began to just slowly grab people around him, other lawyers, and he would find out about this place where there's injustice and that place. And now uh, over the last 20 years, some 45,000 people who had faced injustice saw justice because of this one man who just said, I, I, can't, I can't live like this anymore. I have to do something about it. Now, we're not all going to start international organizations, but we can do something. We can listen to the words of Mother Teresa who said, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. We can all agree that, that we're not going to just be content living in comfort while our, our sister in the room next door is suffering. We're going to be part of helping. And maybe, maybe today uh, you would be willing to do that. Go to, go to your lobby uh, when the service ends and, and, and think about being a child sponsor for international needs. Because that's our job. It's, it's, the Bible actually says that we will be judged Matthew 25, we'll be judged based on how we did or didn't respond to the suffering that we see around us. It's easy to shake our fists at God and say, where are you, when there are times when God says to us, where are you? So suffering allows us to help others. Point number four is this, suffering points us to heaven. 
2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. When we suffer, it reminds us that this life is not all there is. There will be a day when every tear is dried, when, when suffering is done, which is great comfort for those in the midst of suffering. Our suffering ends in heaven and our longing draws us closer to God as we long to be where he is. Johnny Erickson Tata, who I mentioned earlier, who's a quadriplegic, she recently wrote this in an article to, in, in Christianity Today. She comments on this verse from 2 Corinthians. She said, earlier in her life, stuck in a wheelchair, staring out the window at the fields of our farm, she wondered, Lord, how in the world can you consider my troubles light and momentary? I will never walk or run again. My back aches. I'm trapped in front of this window. Years later, however, the light dawned. The spirit-inspired writers of the Bible simply had a different perspective, different perspective, an end-of-time view. When God sent a broken neck my way, he blew out the lamps in my life that lit up the here and now and made it so captivating. The dark despair of total and permanent paralysis that followed wasn't much fun, but it sure made heaven come alive. And one day when our bridegroom comes back, God is going to throw open heaven's shutters. There's not a doubt in my mind that I'll be fantastically more excited and ready for it than if I were on my feet. Those who suffer understand more than anyone that this no eye has seen, no ear has heard that the Bible talks about what God has prepared for the children, his children in the life to come. So, point number one, suffering gives us the proper perspective. Two, it helps put God at the center. Three, it allows us to be the hands and feet of Christ to those who suffer. Four, it it points us to heaven. And finally, the incarnation is proof that God joins us in our suffering. Incarnation means in the flesh, God in the flesh. Jesus came to earth, the God-man. He suffered on our behalf. He, He could have lived any life he wanted to, a life of ease, but he lived a life of suffering. He showed beyond a shadow of a doubt that he understands what suffering is all about. We have this amazing moment recorded on the night before he is killed. He cries out to the garden to take it away. He says, please, I I don't want to do this, but not my will, but yours be done. On the cross, using the words of scripture, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is feeling what many of us have felt. He doesn't cry out, "Eh, eh, don't worry, everybody. I'm going to rise in a few days. Don't get worked up. No, he cries out about his feelings of abandonment. He's honest with his feelings, honest about the real pain that suffering brings, and then he's faithful. So if if Jesus, the God-man, has set us this example, so should we follow. Nicholas Wolterstorff is a professor at Yale who lost his 25-year-old son to a climbing accident in 1983. And he wrote... uh, this book, Lament for a Son, in response to that experience. The first half of the book is just that. It's it's a lament, it's grieving over his losing his son. Towards the end, he begins to talk more about how his faith in Jesus comes to bear in the situation. He says this, God is not only the God of the sufferers, 
but the God who suffers. The pain and fallenness of humanity have entered into his heart. Through the prism of my tears, I have seen a suffering God. To redeem our brokenness and lovelessness, the God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power, but sent his beloved son to suffer like us through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. It's an incredible line. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. And likewise, then Jesus invites us to participate in his kingdom by, by what? By reveling in his glory, by sharing in his good gifts? Yes, yes, but also by sharing in his sufferings. The good news is that we are not alone in our suffering. We've not been abandoned. Many of you know the, the passage from Philippians 3 where Paul says this, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection But sometimes we forget what follows. The fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, I I didn't know that I signed up for that, we might be thinking. Well, that's what life is about. The reality is that there is suffering in life with or without faith. Atheism doesn't remove suffering from anyone's life. If If my wife had chosen to not believe in God because of her loss, it would not have lessened the pain. Well, God became her comfort and her refuge. And when when we're willing to embrace that, that reality, we find that God is there, even in the midst of our greatest suffering. Walter Storff goes on to say this in his book. He says, God is love. That is why he suffers. To love our suffering, sinful world is to suffer. God so suffered for the world that he gave up his only son to suffering. The one who does not see God's suffering does not see his love. God is suffering love. So suffering is down at the center of things, deep down where the meaning is. Suffering is the meaning of our world, for love is the meaning, and love suffers. The tears of God are the meaning of history. But mystery remains. Why isn't love without suffering the meaning of things? Why is suffering love the meaning? Why does God endure his suffering? Why does he not at once relieve his agony by relieving ours? And there is no satisfactory answer to that. Why, why not? Why, God, why, why suffering? Why could, you could just do a mighty blow and just take it all away. We don't know. But the reality is we live in a world of suffering and our God is here with us in the suffering to love us and to strengthen us for the road ahead, to give us the healing and the comfort and the wholeness as we then go to work to relieve the suffering that we find around us. Would you please pray with me? Oh God, who suffers, thank you that you are with us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are someone who understands. 
you are someone who can sympathize with what we are going through because you lived this life. So Jesus, we worship you. We draw near to you. We ask that your spirit would be comforting us, guiding us, encouraging us. Give us eyes to see you, to worship you as you are. In Jesus' name, amen.